recent decisions of the English courts have recognised that the fact that a person is being investigated over possible criminal wrongdoing can attract a reasonable expectation of privacy, creating a de facto doctrine of pre-charge anonymity for criminal suspects. In this episode of the Media Law Podcast, we discuss whether or not this is a positive development in the law of privacy. Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. Two recent cases, the case of Richard and BBC and ZXC and Bloomberg, have created a de facto doctrine of pre-charge anonymity for criminal suspects by recognising that claimants may have a reasonable expectation of privacy in respect of the fact of criminal investigations taking place into their conduct at the pre-charge stage. Whilst not absolute, because any reasonable expectation of privacy could still be outweighed by the public interest in the information at the balancing stage of a claim for misuse of private information, the doctrine has nonetheless attracted controversy, in no small part due to concerns about the potential chilling effects that it may have both on journalism and on victims of crime coming forward. We've discussed the Richard case before on the podcast about a year ago, but with ZXC having been heard now in the Court of Appeal where this doctrine has been affirmed, it's worth revisiting the matter and getting properly stuck into it. I'm joined today by two people ideally suited to doing just that, my usual teammate Paul Ragg, and one of the leading privacy scholars in the world today, editor of the leading text on privacy law, Tugendhatten Christie's The Law of Privacy in the Media, Nicole Morham, Professor of Law at the Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand. Our listeners will probably be familiar with the Cliff Richard case, which Paul and I talked about uh, a year or so ago on this podcast, um, where uh, the singer Cliff Richard successfully sued the BBC uh, for coverage that it had undertaken on its news channels of a police raid on his home in connection with investigations into allegations of historic sexual abuse. Uh, No charges were ever brought against uh, Sir Cliff Richard. Um, ZXC, however, is a more recent case and very recently has had judgment from the Court of Appeal. And now, Nicole, you've written on this recently. Could you bring us up to speed on ZXC and why it's significant? Okay, well, in in ZXC, a chief executive of a company was being investigated by a, um, what's called in the judgment, a UK law enforcement body. We assume it's some kind of branch of the police. And the reason that he was being investigated was because he was suspected of involvement in corruption in a foreign state. And as part of that investigation, the um, investigatory body had sent a letter of request to that foreign state asking for assistance with the investigations. And that letter contained um, information about uh, the UK investigations to date, including um, the evidence that they'd gathered and their preliminary um, views on the the likelihood of involvement. That letter um, somehow got its, uh, made its way into the hands of Bloomberg, who published an article based on its contents um, online. Um, it had been actually published already online when the decision was um, the decision. Sorry, when the claim was brought, 
but in spite of that, the an injunction was awarded by um, Justice Nicklin in the High Court on the basis of misuse of private information. He also awarded um, £20,000 worth of damages for the harm caused um, to, the, to the claimant as a result of the publication. And so um, the, perhaps the most significant line in the judgment is um, the one where um, Justice Nicklin says that a person will, in the usual course of things, or in general, have a reasonable expectation of privacy and respect of the fact and details of the police investigation into their conduct. And so it's um, reinforced the precedent set by um, by uh, Richard and, um, and applied it, obviously, successfully again. So what we, what we have, I think, quite clearly from the court um, in both the Richard case and the ZXC case is the beginnings of a doctrine that is, in effect a kind of pre-charge anonymity. It may not be an absolute guarantee, but the default position seems to be that claimants have a reasonable expectation of privacy in respect of um, criminal investigations, the fact of criminal investigations. And then it comes down to a balancing test, as all things do in misuse of private information, as to whether there's... uh, sufficient public interest to outweigh that reasonable expectation. So perhaps the place to start is to ask um, both of you for your views on whether this is a positive development. Paul. Uh, Well, no, is the short answer. It is definitely not a positive uh, development. Um, It's... It's a development that concerns me not so much for the cases themselves that appear in the courts, but the cases that will not appear in the courts, the cases that we will never heard of. So what concerns me is how these kind of decisions impact upon the daily investigative reporting that uh, local newspapers, hyperlocal newspapers uh, seek to undertake. Um the statements that are made in Richard and BBC and ZXC are uh, categorical in many ways in saying uh, that the suspect in these circumstances has very strong rights uh, that can uh, not be outweighed all that easily. Nicole, what are your thoughts? Well, I've started off by saying I think it's an extremely significant thing. I think the development of this doctrine is one of the most important things that's emerged from the misuse of private, private information action since its inception, because I think what we're seeing here is really a, um, a negotiation of the scope of the action, whether we want to kind of develop a broad brush kind of right of personality type action, like the, a bit more like what you might see in... Um, in the US in a way, or in or in Germany, or in other continental countries? Or do we want to keep a uh, keep the actions which protect against the disclosure of information demarcated in a re- relatively clear um, set of compartments? And um, like Paul, I think I'm, I'm rather in favour of the latter. And I, I think one of the ways in which I perhaps explain my position is by, I sort of come at this by asking, first of all, I think there are, two, there are well, I think there are two questions. And the first one is, do we want to prevent disclosure of information 
about um, pre-charge investigations of the police? So I think that's the first question. Do we want to, and if so, why? And then the second question is, if we do want to, then what's the most appropriate legal action to use? And I think it's quite important that that, that wider context is considered because when we look, just look at privacy, I think that first question can end up colouring the second, that it may be that we do want to um, prevent disclosure of this information in some circumstances, but I don't think it automatically follows that misuse of private information should be satisfied. So I guess, I mean, in terms of the answer to the first question, I think that the, the main concerns seem to be about, about pre-charge disclosure, or about, about sorry, disclosure of um, the fact that a person is being investigated by the police pre-charge. Seems to be, well, they might be innocent, and so you might accidentally, well, you might, you might end up um, inf- implying guilt um, when, um, against someone who is actually innocent of the underlying offending. So that's the first concern. And the second concern, I think, is that the police, if they have information about a suspect, should really, and, and, you know, which is obtained in the exercise of very significant power over a person, that there's also, I think, a concern about how that information gets held and used by the police. Should they be informing the BBC about the fact that a search is taking place and inviting them to come along? So I think those are the two, to me, those are the two questions or the two issues which really lie raise concern about these kinds of disclosures. And I think it's quite important to, to, to put that up front because then once we've done that, we can come to the question of which of the suite of actions which might be available to protect against this kind of harm or against, against this kind of disclosure um, is most appropriate. And I, 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 can, I can pause there or, or I can, I mean, I, what the three are, just for discussion's sake, are defamation, um, breach of confidence, and misuse of private information. And my view, um, for reasons I can go into if you want me to, but my view is that misuse of private information is the least appropriate of those three. My concern from from Richard and even into uh, ZXC um, and, and certain other cases as well is that um, although I don't believe for a second that newspapers or the broader press has to act as a public watchdog, well, here you do have it acting as a public watchdog. I mean, in Richard, it was a literal pu- public watchdog in sat in the helicopter over uh, Sir Cliff Richard's house. And and the, the important point here from a sort of societal perspective is, is how the police responds to power. How does the police interact with power? What, what, what does it do? Does it treat powerful people differently, for example? Well, I'm all for news, newspaper and wider broadcasting scrutiny of that. Yes, I mean, in, in, um, in defamation, we have had decisions which have said that there is a public interest in the disclosure of information about the fact that someone's being investigated by the police. So we've got, we've got precedent um, for saying, and this is Supreme Court uh, precedent, so I'm thinking of Jamil and Flood at this point, we have got precedent mm-hmm. saying that there is a public interest in the disclosure of this kind of information, even when it has been found to be false. And so yes. that, that reinforces, I think, Paul, that idea that there's a public interest in this kind of journalism and, um, and that it's, it, it needs to be um, protected appropriately whilst, whilst taking into account, of course, the, the competing rights, including the ones that you mentioned about state power. Yeah. And we've, we've mentioned previously on this programme our, our concern that uh, in the handling of misuse of private information claims, sometimes more often than we would like, judges almost look at uh, public interest as a kind of binary question, that there either is, is a public interest in the information at stake 
And so the privacy claim loses uh, or there isn't and it succeeds. And uh, there was certainly uh, a degree of that binary thinking, I think, in, in Richard. You're absolutely right about that, Paul. I mean, you and I both, we wrote a piece together on the Richard case in which we took very different views about the the conclusion, but um, we're absolutely in agreement that the way that Mr. Justice Mann dealt with uh, the balancing act in the Richard case wasn't a true balance at all. He simply found that there was no public interest whatsoever in the information, which, 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 which cannot surely be right. There was a degree of public interest for the reasons that you've given, the reasons you gave then, the reasons you've given now. The question is, is that a sufficient degree of public interest to outweigh the claimant's rights? And that's where you and I part ways, but mm. there we are. So, I mean, for, for, for the benefit of the, the, the listeners, um, I'm going to weigh in here a little because um, I take a different view on this too. Um, Paul and Nicole probably slightly probably slightly less far away from Nicole's view um, but still significantly um, in that I'm far less concerned about the development of uh, this development within misuse of private information which I don't think does terrible violence to misuse of private information as a doctrine I think it may well be part of uh, fairly natural evolution of uh, the doctrine. And um, within that, I'm less concerned about um, any overspill into the uh, realms of defamation. Um, There has always been overlap between uh, different legal doctrines, different bits of the law of tort overlap with one another, have done for a very long time. Um, you know, defamation has hardly uh, been out there on its own. It's coexisted with the doctrine of malicious falsehood for a very long time. Um, so of itself, I'm, I'm less concerned by that. But we'll uh, no doubt explore those differences a little further in in our discussion. If, before we before we move on, perhaps we could touch on, a, on another point that arises uh, here, and that's the interpretation of... Uh, the Section 6 obligations that the Human Rights Act imposes upon public authorities to give further effect to uh, the convention rights that we are, for the time being, signed up to. Um, Nicole, do you have any views on, on the use of Section 6 in these in these cases? I'm thinking especially of, uh, well, ZXC, ERY, and also um, Richard itself. I think there's some interesting broader questions about the extent to which this action is going to settle down as a creature of the convention or as a, as a child of the convention in a way or as a, um, a, a, a subset of the common law. I think there's a little, I think we're seeing at the moment a, um, a slight, it's like working out of exactly where it's going to end up sitting. And I think we see that in some of the language that gets used in the cases. I think sometimes we see the language, the, the explicit language of balancing reference to um, the Axel Springer case out of the European Court of Human Rights, which gives a set of factors which need to be considered when we um, weigh, when we balance the two parts of the action, the, the reasonable expectation of privacy against any 
um, competing interest. So I think sometimes we see that, we see that that um, Strasbourg jurisprudence being used very, or well, the Strasbourg conceptions being used quite consciously. But I think actually the stronger theme is, is is the common law one of looking more at the the action as a balancing, um, sorry, more as a um, as a cause of a cause of action, so that you establish there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, and then mm. the second stage is really uh, the operation of a defence that it's a public interest defence. Yeah. That that's yeah. that's actually how it operates in practice. I actually pref- prefer that as an approach. I think that's uh, it fits better yeah. into our. Um, into the common law structure. Although I think the difficulty is, and I think we've already foreshadowed that slightly, that sometimes that we often use, we're often, in many of these cases, we're using the language of balancing, but we're actually applying the the methodology of a defense. And it would be good if that could align more closely. I, I think it should be aligned by just saying it's a defense and actually bringing the, um, bringing the, embedding the action a little bit more into the common law, particularly if there's any vulnerability around the Human Rights Act, but that's another, another story. But the, um, so that, that was, that's my position on it, but I think that's it's uh, um, that in a way that we that we could see Article Six and um, the Convention as kind of the springboard, which has got the action into the common law. But now that it's in there, we really need to start looking at it as a as part of a of a um, of a family of actions which which sit in the common law and need to be reconciled with each other, as rather than than sort of as something that's sui generis that's been that's been jetted in from outside. I think Nicole must be right about that because um, consensus has—it sprang up in the early two thousands in both the academic and judicial communities about the manner in which the Human Rights Act would have an impact on domestic law, and the consensus sprang up around the notion of what we call indirect horizontal effect, which is uh, a a hideously complicated uh, concept that I'm not going to put listeners through, but essentially it means that rather than any brand new causes of action springing up that were themselves children of the European Convention on Human Rights, we would adapt existing common law doctrine to be convention compliant. And thus the common law remains the vehicle through which convention rights are litigated domestically. And so misuse of private information being a domestic cause of action ought to take on the shape of whichever body of law we we, we associate it with. Um, so to conceptualize it as prima facie case plus defense, I think makes sense and it would be beneficial for the courts to clarify that. There is perhaps a difficulty in that it's still, I think, pretty tricky um, to classify the doctrine of misuse of private information along traditional lines. We've had authority from the courts um, saying that misuse of private information is a tort, but the explanations for uh, those rulings, which both came in the uh, case of Vidal Hall and Google, one in the High Court, one in the Court of Appeal, um, the explanations for that are not really very convincing. Um, So I think there are still question marks as to just which body of domestic law misuse of private information fits in. And I suspect, though this is the bit I've never written down in any published work, not yet, is um, it may well not fit into any existing classification. 
it may not be a tort, it may not be equitable, it may not be a bit of vaguely public law-ish human rights-y methodology. It's some sort of hybrid of all of them. Um, this is my suspicion, but I mean, a lot of work would need to be done to, to make that case. But I think that perhaps lies fairly central to some of the problems that we're encountering. It feels to me like a tort. I'm interested to hear your... That's a really interesting perspective, Tom, because I, I just always, I've always been fairly comfortable with the idea that it's a tort on the basis, you know, you have a cause of action and you have you know, what looks like a defence. So it's, it'd be really interesting to hear your thinking about um, about why that is. Okay, so, I mean, it slightly digresses from the point, but um, <laughs> I don't mind this digression. It's a bit of, perhaps just a bit of, you know, the, the, the formal route for it, right? Now, I don't regard myself as a great formalist, but insofar as uh, there are plenty of formalist lawyers out there that like clear formal justifications, that like clear demarcations between one action and another. Hello. Um, to remain in play. Hi, Paul. Yes, I was thinking of you. Um, <laughs> then this does create some problems. So mi- misuse of private information, it's commonly thought, grew out of breach of confidence. Question, at what point did it grow out of it? And how does a tort grow out of an equitable doctrine? Because if you plant the seed in equity, presumably the tree that you get ought also to be equitable, but it seems not to be. Um, Now, we attribute misuse of private information's emergence from breach of confidence to the case of Campbell, but none of the judges in Campbell said that that was what was happening. Um, Lord Nichols said that the doctrine should be renamed the doctrine, the existing doctrine, the doctrine it was pleaded in, breach of confidence, should be renamed. So, you know, the implication there being that breach of confidence disappears and is replaced by misuse of private information, but it's just the same thing by another name with a tweaked methodology. All the other judges continue to talk about breach of confidence as if that was still the doctrine being used. And then it's not until um, you get... Uh, a ruling s- s- several years later uh, in uh, the it was the final bit of the the Douglas Zeta Jones and Hello magazine litigation, um, which came up in the uh, House of Lords when the judges came back in and started talking about misuse of private information in our highest court as if it were a separate doctrine, but even then the judges don't actually agree that it's separate. Um, you have uh, in complete equivocation from the House of Lords at that point as to whether we're dealing with one doctrine or two doctrines, and if so, what kind of doctrines they are. Um, So for me, you know, there there are a lot of problems with the classification, um, and I'm not going to go into all of them here, um, though I've written about it in communications law, if anyone wants to (laughs) take a look at it. Um, There's a plug, always good to get a plug in. But the, uh, you know, just the start of this, um, the emergence of misuse of private the circumstances of its birth, as it were, give rise to serious questions about its parentage. Mm, I mean, it's mm. one of the it's, those are good points. I mean, it's one of the things that makes the the topic such a fascinating one. I think that not only is um, the misuse of private information action about and you, uh, us trying to come to terms with a societal concept and turn it into law, it also raises all sorts of questions about the nature of common law development, including those ones that you raise. I mean, one of the issues that I'm always um, interested in is and 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 I argue for in many ways is that to, for us not to forget those breach of confidence beginnings, because I think they do 
and they are very valuable in um, in sol solving some of the problems that we face in um, in working out misuse of private information. I mean, including this one. I mean, in fact, I think I've, I've argued in, in um, one of my journal of media law pieces on this that you that we can actually use breach of confidence to solve this in its in its traditional form. But no, you're right. It's, if, it's, if it's a tort, it's a complex one. There's no doubt about that. Well, on that point, Nicole, I mean, just perhaps coming to that article that you've written where you talk about a, a route out of the hole that the courts have dug themselves into with this um, pre-charge anonymity doctrine um, as being um, something we can get from older breach of confidence principles. Um, so, I mean, could you talk us through your thinking on that? Yes, well, I wonder whether I should, should before I do that, would it be sensible for me to say why I think that the privacy, because I haven't actually said why I think the privacy action is um, problematic. Shall I, can I do that first, and then I'll come to why I think breach confidence yes. might help solve the problem? So I mean, the, the, I've written two pieces on this in the journal of media law. Um, the first one and I'm, was um, is, is, has a spoiler in the title, so privacy, reputation, alleged wrongdoing, why police investigations should not be regarded as private. Um, but um, so in that one, I, I, I talk about why I think that um, misuse of private information is the wrong um, action. And I'm going to give three main reasons. And the first one is that um, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a doctrine or a sort of a, a principle in, um, in misuse of private information action, which derives from breach of confidence, that we tend not to regard things as private. If, it, if the information is about serious wrongdoing of some sort. So I trace back a, a number of um, cases from uh, breach of confidence in which this, this point is made, that if you're being investigated for some kind of fraudulent behaviour or for some kind of serious criminal behaviour, um, then the court, says, the court said in breach of confidence that evidence of this, so sorry, not so much investigation, but evidence of, of this kind of behaviour is not confidential. And we also have decisions in um, breach of privacy and, and the misuse of private information action saying the same thing. So I'm thinking of cases like um, Brown, um, where, the, where it was said that to the extent that Lord Brown had been engaging in um, misuse of company resources, for example, that was a not a private matter because it involved wrongdoing. So, and I think that when we think intuitively about what what is private, it tends to not to include these kinds of things. So, and this, this sort of leads into the second point, which is when we talk about what's private, what we normally are saying is this is not none of your business. This is not something about me that you're entitled to know about. And so usually we'll be saying it's about somebody's sex life or um, some aspect of on their medical records, which has no impact on um, anything outside of their, their um personal sphere or the, the, the intimacies of their domestic relationships. We usually say those things are, are, are nobody, are not for anybody else to know unless that person wants to share them. I think it's difficult to make that claim about the fact that somebody's being investigated by the police. So if, if, I, if somebody comes up to me and says, oh my gosh, did you hear your neighbours being investigated by the police for corruption in a foreign state or for harming his children or for um, fraud? I think it's more difficult to say that that sits in a category alongside information about his sex life or about his um, uh, his health records, because it may well be that that that, I, that it is the society's interest in knowing if somebody is causing serious harm or is engaged in serious wrongdoing, and so that's the and I think that that principle is recognised in uh, in breach of confidence and and actually if you look for it in um, misuse of private information, so that's the that's a sort of principle point. 
uh, the, the, the point about sort of the nature of the action. And the second point is about, um, comes back to the point that you made before, um, Tom, about reputation and about the fact that often privacy will protect um, reputation. But the point I make in this article is that, yes, it does, but it does so incidentally. It protects reputation when the thing that would make people think less of you is private. So it protects it because it's private. It doesn't protect it because it makes you look bad. So I use the example in, in the article of, say somebody has um, sexual peccadilloes, sexual preferences, which people would look down on. I'm not going to hypothesize about what they might be, but let's say I use the example of some kind of sexual peccadillo. Now let's say that those things are private and because they're private, that this person's reputation is served because people may think less of this person if they knew that they'd engaged in these activities. So in that case, we see reputation and um, and privacy being enhanced together. But if um, but I don't but it doesn't follow from that that it just because something may, makes you look bad that it's also private. So the first question is has to be is this something that you're entitled to keep to yourself because it's nobody else's business that may well incidentally protect your reputation but we have to be protecting it because it's private not because it makes you look bad and I think that's where um, things go awry in, in the Richard case and I give a number of details there about how it sort of mucks up the reasoning the fact that the, 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 um, uh, the so then we get to the point where the fact that the the, the nature of the reporting led credence to the allegations becomes um, something which weighs against the BBC rather than for them, as you might expect. So that's that's my that's my reading, reasoning for um, for sort of some of the reasoning I've given for, for why I think that um, privacy is the wrong action. So I take a different view um, to uh, Nicole on uh, on on this, but mainly that's because. I don't see the need for such a sharp distinction between reputation and privacy. So when you say that um, misuse of private information does protect reputation but only does so incidentally, uh, I, I agree that that is an accurate description if we keep reputation and privacy very clearly distinct from one another. Um, but if we think of a person's reputation as an aspect of their private life, um, then I think things look a little bit different. And the reason I think we need to do that is that one's reputation is, I think, often in English law, considered uh, as, as two things. Um, well, I think there are two things about English law that, 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 that really do get highlighted when we think about reputation. That's a better way to put it. Um, the first is that English law likes to translate things into either property or kind of quasi-property, some sort of commodity. And a person's reputation becomes a thing that person can trade on. So I, I think English law regards it in this kind of quasi-proprietary fashion and thus struggles to consider it part of a person's private life. It's not private, it's a thing you have and you can trade on. And the second matter related to that is that reputation gets thought of as entirely public-facing, as a kind of, as an outward-looking thing in English law. And I just don't think that that encapsulates all of it, because there are, there are, 
matters related to a person's reputation that are very much inward focused. Um, the way in which one thinks one will be perceived by others impacts upon the way one acts. If one feels one has lost reputation publicly, that will impact upon the way that a person acts privately. It can impact upon a person's uh, choices when it comes to self-development. It can impact seriously on what a person decides to do with their life. And, uh, you know, and there are, of course, tragic cases where, where people decide um, not to go on with their life because of what they've been subjected to, what they feel um, that, you know, that they're now thought of, the way that they think they're now thought of. So the reputational aspects of this, I just don't think are so clearly uh, demarcated in people's lives. So I have, uh, I wouldn't be so wedded to trying to maintain the legal distinction between them, traditional as it is. Mm. Um, but that's where I think that, you know, the, the crux of where we do, and now uh, there are ideas that I'm, that I'm working on um, to do with other ways we could try to reconceptualize this doctrine as a privacy type action that would be acceptable um, and wouldn't, you know, undermine misuse of private information entirely. And I think there may be lessons to be learned from the, the false light tort in the United States, but I'm, I'm wary of bringing in too many different concepts into, uh, into the podcast today and also things that I haven't fully thought through yet. Can I ask a couple of questions, uh, Tom, based on what you just said? Yeah, sure. Um, because I thought that was an interesting distinction you were making between public and private facing aspects of reputation. Yeah. Um, I'm not prepared to concede anything at this point, I should make clear. <laughs> However, what what is the point of speaking of uh, this, this private facing uh, reputation uh, in a case like Richard, for example, or ZXC? where the thing that is being complained about is the public-facing thing. I could sort of understand the distinction you're making if there was no external recognition of the perceived internal damage to reputation, and then you might say, well, but, you know, this person is feeling this way now because, you know, even though there's no external manifestation internally, it, it, is, it has done all of these things. And in the Richard case, perhaps that's where Gloria Hunniford's evidence comes in, uh, because surely it must come in somewhere. No. Um, but in, in Richard, it is a public-facing, uh, uh, it is a public-facing reputational concern because the discussion is about the losses Cliff Richard has made as an artist. It's about his reputation amongst the Christian community. Um, and it is about the stigma that man talks about repeatedly and which the Court of Appeal in ZXC echoed. Yes and no. Yes, much of what the judge thought was harmful for Sir Cliff Richard was outward-facing. Um, but the outward-facing aspects of this are not actionable as reputational concerns right the law of defamation doesn't help him because the underlying facts are true he was under investigation right mm -hmm. so 
the BBC didn't say this guy's guilty. The BBC simply said this guy's under investigation. And this is where um, the concept of meaning in defamation is important. Uh, practitioners in the field will be familiar with the chase level meanings. Students might well not be. But in essence, the chase level meanings, which we have mentioned before on the podcast, um, range uh, from imputation of guilt uh, through reasonable grounds to suspect down to reasonable grounds to investigate. And any allegation of fact might bear one or one of those styles of meaning. So the chase levels me- meanings. Um, I don't think it's possible to impute guilt in a defamation sense or in a, a way that would be actionable. So, uh, you know, a chase level one meaning um, in the Richard case. So, what we're left with is a is, is, is a situation where Sir Cliff Richard would not be able to protect the outward aspects of what's happened. What remains, I think, are more inward-facing matters related still to reputation. Um, so when you start to ask the question, well, he knows he didn't do anything wrong. But now, what impact is it having on his life for him to look at the mirror every morning and wonder what other people are thinking of him? Right? It's not that he can sue for defamation. I don't think he can. But there's still an impact on him that needs to be remedied. That that's my point here. The um, can I can I chip in here with um, I guess the first of all, I've got the two points I want to make about. First of all, there's the, the question about whether defamation could potentially step in and, and just to, to explore that a little bit but but just before i get there this is the question i mean i think we can all agree that that personality that the sort of um that personality rights to use that term loosely overlap i mean i, I don't think there's any question that reputation and privacy overlap i think you know, i think you're right to have said that where we um we were, where we're perhaps differing is the degree of demarcation we want within within that and just to just to defend the the um the sort of starting point that we do want demarcation, I think one of the things that's really important to, to um, put into this discussion is if we don't demarcate, we end up with some pretty fluid sort of um, ideas that I would forgive a media organisation for having difficulty um, understanding in advance. And I think it's a real cons- – th- one of the reasons that I'm very um, – committed to the idea of precision and certainty in this area is that we are dealing with freedom of expression on the other side and that the chilling effect yeah. of these actions is, is can be greatly exacerbated if we don't have clear lines that can be understood in advance, particularly by, by media and by, and by individual speakers who are wanting to, um, to, to, to speak out or to investigate the um, matters of public concern. So I think there's a, there's, that, that's one of the reasons why I, I um, take the view that we do want a demarcation to be as clear as we possibly can be. But on the um, and then and then on the on the sort of the more conceptual point, I understand the point about what you say about the outward and inward looking aspect. But I'm just I'm I, I'm still sort of, my thoughts on this are still forming. But I'm just not um, I, and I totally accept that reputation has that that effect on a person that you do that of course it's the the sort of internal way that you you see yourself. But I'm just wondering whether or not. That isn't the case in all sorts of situations where we have an outward. Um, I don't know. Is it any different if I get if I get sued for negligence? That does that also not affect the way that I behave and the way that I see myself? And doesn't? But but yeah. So I sort of think that most most things which which are, um, which happen in, out in the world have an impact on us in um, in our internal lives. Uh, 
and so just just wondering whether or not that's enough to say that actually makes it part of the privacy interest. That's the well. This is this is why I've been tentatively thinking about what assistance the false light tort might give us. Now, the false yeah. light tort, for the benefit of listeners, um, is one of the four privacy torts uh, recognized in the United States. Though in recent years, it's become very sparsely used in the United States. It has, however, very recently been recognized in uh, the province of Ontario and Canada. Um, but essentially, this is a tort um, which uh, provides the claimant with a claim in situations where uh, the defendant has published information that has placed the claimant in a false light publicly. So has presented the claimant to be something that they are not. Um, and this could result from either the publication of false facts or from true facts that give a misleading impression. And I would argue that although the exact contours of the American tort don't fit the Richard situation, not precisely, nor could they be easily grafted onto English law because it's, it's quite an alien doctrine. I think the basic idea that there should be a cause of action for those who are painted in a false light by publication of facts, which may even be true facts, can still be useful to us. What happened to Sir Clifford was essentially that. That's where the judge says, you know, there's this problem of no smoke without fire. It's not that people will necessarily come to believe that he is definitely a wrongdoer because the BBC said this man is a wrongdoer, right? There was That did not happen. But they published true facts. His house is being raided by the police. And this led to a misleading impression that he might well be a wrongdoer. Um, so that's where I think... I, that, that's why I, how I would probably prefer to think of what the courts have been doing when developing the law in this area. I think it's closer to that than it is to bringing defamation into privacy. That, that's, that's where my thoughts are going at the moment anyway. I mean, I think that the false light towards a very interesting one because it, it deals with all sorts of um, tricky situations which fall just outside our conceptions of um, of defamation. I, I think it's, it's also really useful for mm. somebody falsely says that you're a war hero or somebody falsely says that you're gay. I mean, yes. It's not It's not something that's that's we're going to say is denigrates you and yet it's very, and the war hero example is, is a real one from the false light, from the false light taught in America and it causes the man considerable distress and inconvenience. But can I just come back to yes. the chase meanings? Because um, as, as we said in discussion before we actually started recording, this is something I've been thinking about a little bit. One of the things that I'm, uh, um, again, fairly unformed thoughts, but um, the the basis of, of 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 your the rejection that you just set out of defamation, and I think that's right that it would be very difficult to get it to um, cross the line in defamation. But it seems that the basis for the decision in Richard and in ZXC was the fact, particular particularly in Richard, um, but a bit echoed in ZXC, was that there's a stigma attached to um, to finding out that somebody's being suspected as uh, as a, a police suspect. And mm-hmm. um, and that's referred to in, in um, throughout. So that's the basis. It's, it's, it's a, there's a big stigma. Now, if there's a stigma, it's and they say it's because there's no people think there's no smoke without fire. So they infer that there is the person is guilty or is probably guilty or might be guilty. And it seems to me that if that is actually what the problem is, if it is actually that the 
where, where the starting point is, well, people are going to think that Cliff Richard is guilty or people are going to think that ZXC is guilty, then we need to go back, don't we, to the meanings. Well, there's an argument, at least, for going back to, to meaning and defamation and saying, well, if that's, if that's the case, then is it really the case that the, that the, um, that the truth defence is automatically available? Because if the imputation is, in fact, guilt or something close to it, then could we not say the defendant can have the has to has to um, has to justify in, in defamation? So that that we come back to the defamation is actually the appropriate place because the imputation is guilt, and then we can say, well, can you can you defendant justify this this imputation? And it feels, I mean, I realise that there are all sorts of um, there are all sorts of technicalities around that that that, are, that I'm fudging over, but it does feel more that that's where the question should be located rather than sort of take jet jumping across into privacy and saying, well, actually, let's avoid all of that difficulty and say, well, let's just deal with the question over in privacy because then we can avoid it. And, and of course, um, just what, as a slight aside, we, we could also, of course, avoid the rule in Bonnard and Perryman that you can't get an injunction to prevent pre-publication, um, uh, pre-trial, if you're going to plead truth. So that's a defamation principle that, that most um, of the listeners will be familiar with. But that, again, you can circumvent that if you can plead privacy rather than pleading in defamation, and it just feels like we're we're we're, using, we're skirting an issue by go, by going across and pleading it in something else. We're actually really what we should, I think we should be doing is saying, okay, well, what's going on over here in defamation? Can we do we need to adjust it in the ways that Tom suggests, or in some other way, um, or at least to to be a little bit more, um, I don't know, to, just to to interrogate the the meaning a little bit more. So I think defamation. Well, we still haven't got on to talking about breach of confidence, but I think. Defamation seems to be um, uh, certainly to be ripe for further investigation, including the sort of false light ideas that you were talking about, Tom. I think they're really important. Um, so I think that the the idea of revisiting meaning is a really uh, interesting one, and revisiting its relationship to defence, like um, truth, is is also really important. Um, I th- my impression. From the judgment, particularly in in Richard, is that when the judge is talking about stigma and there being no smoke without fire and so on and so forth, he's not really thinking in terms of and this would be actionable and defamation because it has a defamatory meaning. Um, I think it would be very difficult to say that a purely factual news broadcast that contains pictures of a police raid. Um, is prom- is promulgating a defamatory meaning mm. um, when right. the, the most obvious meaning to attach to it is here is a police raid, here is a person under investigation. Um, now that might, I guess, come to chase level two, but I'm sure that there are very strong policy grounds for saying we're not going to regard that as actionable and defamatory. It's not defamatory. Um, in these circumstances. So I think you'd have difficulty making out a defamation claim. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. Um, for the record, Tom, yeah. I suspect that if one could prove the truth then, at least, of... The, let's say it did get adopted as a chase level two meaning, which is reasonable grounds to suspect a person of, of wrongdoing, then defence of truth is going to work for that because clearly the police must have had reasonable grounds in order to conduct the search. So, once again, we're in a situation where defamation is not going to provide an adequate 
any adequate recourse for the claimant. The question then really is, should anything else step into that gap or is it fine to leave it? Um, and since the courts clearly are taking the view that it's a gap that needs to be filled, I've just been trying to think of ways in which we could rationalise it rather than um, rather than approaching it from you know the view that this is this is a wrong thing and we're we're doing violence to the doctrine. Um, maybe just because I didn't I thought it would be intellectually interesting to disagree with you, which of course it always is. Um, Paul, you had some ideas about this as well, didn't you? So yeah, I had a, a couple of observations uh, that I uh, I'd be interested in the views of, of both of you. Um, earlier on, Nicole, you were talking about the fluidity of uh, the uh, use of reputation within the doctrine of, of privacy law, and I wondered if this fluidity was in fact in danger of extending further that uh, not only are we sort of borrowing concepts from one area of the law and, and extrapolating them for the purposes of another, um, but that actually we, we are also in danger of borrowing concepts from outside of law, that we're in danger of borrowing concepts from uh, ideas of morality, ideas of uh, political, uh, the political spectrum, um, political rights, and uh, sort of that this might be a cause of uh, confusion, that we're, in a sense, moving between dimensions without acknowledging that we're doing so or, or moving within uh, some kind of large hall of mirrors. Uh, and, and what made me think of this was that some of the things that Tom was talking about earlier when he, when he spoke of privacy law uh, uh, being a part of uh, reputation, um, but also later on spoke of reputation as as, as an aspect of uh, private life. It just struck me that I could agree with the first of those statements. Sorry, I could disagree with the first of those statements. I do disagree with the first of those statements, uh, but I could agree with the second statement um, because when one says reputation is an aspect of private life, um, that sort of makes sense on the sort of uh, moral spectrum, um, but not as a as a doctrinal matter. It also springs brings to mind um, the difference between the concept of private life in, in Strasbourg, which is a much broader concept than um, than privacy in the common law, which I think can also be a source of confusion on, the, on your point about sort of the, sometimes we're using um, we're, we're taking things from different places and 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 mixing them up a little bit. Where I disagree with you, Paul, is, is is right at the very base of what you're saying, which is that, you know, when you say that the danger here is that law tries to take account of things from outside law, you get non-legal ideas of privacy, of reputation, of their interrelationship, muddying the doctrinal waters. I don't think that you have meanings from outside law. Um, law does not exist in a vacuum. Law is a human practice, intimately connected, intertwined in messy and often chaotic ways with the society in which it operates. And so our societal ideas of privacy, of reputation, of any concept legally recognized must bleed into 
the uh, ways in which that legal recognition occurs. Um, law as a human practice is there to take account of and try to reflect the reality of human existence in order to resolve disputes. Um, and it's not some beautifully pure yet alien world that must not be corrupted. Um, I, 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 I just fundamentally don't agree that you can draw such a sharp distinction between that which is legally cognizable and that which is not. Um, but given that our disagreement is, is quite so fundamental, we're not going to agree on that. No, and, and, <laughs> and it's interesting that I've become the one who's being dogmatic here, whereas that kind of feels like something you would do. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. Um, just to expand on why I think I can agree with the statement reputation is an aspect of private life, but disagree that reputation bleeds into privacy law is that I think to say that reputation is an aspect of private life uh, is to say nothing about defamation law. In other words, one can admit that reputation is an aspect of private life because reputation and, and uh, a bad reputation um, or impact on reputation will necessarily affect how one is in the family home. I understand that. But for me, defamation law exists as a legal claim to try and address uh, the wrong that has been done to the family life. I don't see why you need private privacy law as such, by which we mean misuse of private information or a data protection action. I don't see why you need that to protect reputation. Well, you wouldn't if you could protect the inward-facing aspects of reputation through a defamation action, but you can't. So, um, yeah, before we end, I do want to ask you, Nicole, because you have written on this recently, um, about, about your proposed solution to some of these problems in doctrinal terms, which is to go back to a principle in breach of confidence as a way to, uh, if I read your paper right, to, to kind of re-rationalise this emergent part of misuse of private information. Yes, thanks. Well, I think the point on, um, in a way that the point was sort of more of a conceptual one, which is if, coming back to the point that I made right at the beginning about that we have, an, we have a variety of options that we could use to prevent this kind of disclosure from happening. And um, so whilst I, don't, I, I wouldn't maintain that using breach of confidence or is perfect, um, I think it's better than using privacy. And I think it's more conceptually sound than using privacy. I think I could probably say the same um, about um, I think there's also arguments that we've, we've canvassed about looking at defamation as well. But just in terms of, um, of breach of confidence, I thought it was just an important thing to inject into the discussion that to the extent that our concern in these situations, and I think it's a particularly acute in Richard, where you had a situation where um, the BBC had been told by the police themselves when their search was taking place. And so because they'd been told, albeit... Um, They'd been told they had they'd been reasonably misled. They'd managed to sort of weasel it out of the police, have, um, using some pretty questionable um, 
tactics, but nonetheless, they had been told by the police when it was taking place, and that that was the basis of um, that's the reason why they turned up in the helicopter. So, in a situation like that, then it seems to me that a very significant part of the wrong is that the police took information which they was that they they held pursuant to massive powers over. The suspect. They took that information and rather than use it to investigate the crime, they passed it on to the media who then used it to uh, to create this this news story, which was which was presented in a very sensational way, as it turns out. So I was quite interested in that in that dynamic, the, the relationship between the the pre the, the the press and the police. And we, we see that in a number of other occasions, in you know, police ride-alongs and on in some of these um, reality TV shows, we also see this 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 relationship operating. And it seemed to me that if, if that, to the extent that that was part of the concern, then um, it felt like breach of confidence would be um, a useful way of mediating. Because normally when somebody holds information about somebody else um, pursuant to a power or because that person has confided something in them, then, then we use breach of confidence. It's all about protecting information because of the circumstances of the disclosure. Mm-hmm. And um, it took me a while to, to, to turn it up, but I eventually found a... Um, there's a principle which applies uh, here called the Marcel principle, which was restated really quite recently in, um, by the Supreme Court in a case called Ingenious Media, which involved um, the disclosure of a person's tax records. And in that case, Lord Toulson articulated the principle in the following terms, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it out. Um, I'll read out the actual um, passage because it's uh, it doesn't really bear um, paraphrasing, but it says where information of a personal or confidential nature is obtained or received in the exercise of a legal power or in furtherance of a public duty, then the recipient will in general owe a duty to the person from whom it was received or to whom it relates, not to use it for other purposes. So if you are the police and you obtain information about a person because you're investigating them, then you owe a duty to that person that you are investigating not to use it for other purposes. And it feels to me like this is there's something in this here that they shouldn't have given the information to the police. I uh, sorry, they shouldn't. Mm. They shouldn't have given the information to the BBC. Now we get we get into difficulties slightly because the claim um, the claim against the police had already been settled by the time um, Richard was heard, and the claim was against the BBC themselves. But in other areas of breach of confidence, we have this third party principle where a person who obtains information knowing that it's confidential takes it subject to the obligation of confidence. So the media is. Um, has to has to abide by the the obligations of confidence which were existed at the time the information was disclosed. So if that was the case. So it seems that it's not beyond the realm of possibility, or it's not it's not too far stretched to say, well, the media can also be um, that, that 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 obligation of confidence can be sheeted home to the media as well. And I don't know. Just, I just thought it was important to, to put that into the discussion because that feels to me like a a more intuitive response to um, to the question of uh, the relationship between. The, um, the well, I guess it was trying to inject. I guess the, the, the sort of the, the the nature of the power which lies at the heart of these cases. You know, the fact that it is an investigatory body investigating that somebody is under investigation by the state. But that's something mm-hmm. in the cases that changes the nature of it. It, it also um, it also helps to to draw a distinction, which I think is really important, which is between a disclosure which is the source of which is the police. So the police um, say that the letter of request gets into the wrong hands or the police say when the search is taking place and a disclosure which is made, say, by the victim themselves. Because at the moment, we don't have a clear distinction in the cases between those two things. So if a victim goes out and says, 
oh, you know, does a tweet say, says, um, you know, so glad that the meta taking my allegations against X seriously, um, they've decided to investigate. So if, that, if, a, if a person tweeted that, the victim of, of an alleged offending tweeted that, then at the moment it looks like this, this body of case law would apply to that tweet. There's no distinction made. Whereas I, I think that we, I mean, if we don't want that, or if we wanted to distinguish between that and a situation where the source of the disclosure was actually the investigating body themselves, then this also uh, creates a way of doing that. It injects the question of um, the, the, the power, the legal power of the, of the state into the equation in a way which I think is actually... Uh, very helpful. Yes, I really liked this idea of yours, and um, if any of the listeners want to read it, it's in the Journal of Media Law. Um, I, I like this idea because I think it it does get doctrinally closer to making sense of these developments in MPI um, than anything else that I've seen. Um, I, I guess the two difficulties that I would have with it, and they're not they're not at all to do with your your reading of the law. They're simply to do with uh, whether it's normatively appealing to to go down this path. Um, that the two concerns I would have are, are are first, how does this square with the idea that investigations into really serious offences are not confidential matters, um, and Secondly, the flip side of the scenario that you gave about somebody putting the information out on Twitter when they are themselves the uh, the complainant is that this confidence principle, the Marcel principle, will only apply to public bodies who are investigating um, whether it's crime or some sort of wrongdoing, it's it's a public body oriented doctrine, so far as I understand it, um, which could then be applied to a media body if that's where they obtain the information. But it doesn't work uh, unless I've misunderstood it, where the media body themselves, through whatever investigative journalist means, turns up the information, but without the involvement of, say, the police. And I'm just concerned that that leaves a gap. Yes, I, I agree. It does draw a distinction between those two categories of um, source. So if if the source is the police, then under the, then under this principle, it's covered. So it's a much narrower it's a much narrower doctrine. So it's it's covered if the source is the police or some other state authority. If the source is somebody not connected with the um, with the investigation, so if it's the the, the alleged victim themselves, or if the um, uh, then the news organisation has managed to um, discover the information through their own investigations. Then that is also falls outside the scope of the doctrine. But on the um, on the first point, if it's if the uh, I think that I think it is I, I am concerned about the chilling the potential chilling effect of the current position on people who want to um, draw attention to wrongdoing of which they are the victim. I think there's, I think at the moment it's, it's not sufficiently clear that it doesn't cover a person who makes an allegation um, themselves against against somebody. So if you, if you can put a, an allegation um, to a, a small group of people or to a friend that somebody has harmed you, I think it needs to be made very clear that this does not, this, this, that you're not going to be subject to a privacy claim 
by a powerful person or by the person who has has harmed you. I think it's, it needs so that it has the advantage of of excluding those cases and making that I think um, uh, ameliorating that chilling effect. So I actually think in a way that's that's an advantage or one that needs to be explored, uh, an idea that needs to be explored um, more expressly, and so it has the advantage of of doing that. On the second point about um, the investigation of the, 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 the about media who investigate uh, a matter themselves and uncover the information without the aid of the state authority, is it? Am I right in thinking that at the moment that is the position in ZXC? I, I'm 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 trying to recall the exact passage, but I'm pretty sure in ZXC that they they go to some length to to say, don't they, that it would have been fine to have to have reported on the conduct. So it would have been fine to have reported on the conduct of what was going on and um, of what was allegedly going on. It was just that they couldn't publish the letter of request. Am I right in thinking that? Can you remember those? I mean, I realise it's slightly different from what you were, what you were yeah. suggesting, but it, but there is already this 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 carve out of a protection around allowing the media to do their own investigation of the matter at hand. They can't necessarily report on the existence of the um, investigation. But they could certainly mm. report on the underlying allegations, and so in a way, it doesn't feel like that's actually the position that I'm that, that, that you were describing is actually very far away from the. I'm, not, position we're in. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering whether there's perhaps a slight tension there between ZXC and Richard, on the basis that whilst the police, whilst the BBC got their information from the police, it wasn't the information they got from the police that they broadcast; it was the raid that they broadcast. Um, and they could have done that anyway. They just happened to know the point at which it was taking place because the police had told them. But if they had, mm. presumably, it would still have been objectionable if they just happened to be flying over and got the, and, and got the footage. Um, I think I found the passage in ZXC. In, what does it say? Well, Underhill, Underhill uh, says in paragraph 150, uh, making references... Simon LJ. I accept that in the circumstance of, of a particular case, the undoubted legitimacy of publishing allegations of misconduct may mean either that a person under criminal investigation for involvement in the misconduct has no reasonable expectation of privacy in that fact, or that that expectation is outweighed by the Article 10 right. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that it's that the, the if we were to base it on breach of confidence and on this particular principle, then it would be narrower. The coverage would be narrower. And, and I, my personal view is it's prob- that's, that's probably better than having the overbroad, or what I think is the overbroad principle which we have at the moment. So it's, a, mm-hmm. it's, it's not perfect, but I think it, if it was a choice between the two, just this, the, narrower, the narrower ground focusing in on the particular relationship between the parties which was at stake in... Um, in ZXC and in Richard, and in cases like Hanon, um, if you remember those, for those of you who know those mm-hmm. cases, that, that yeah. where you've got um, the, 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 the media being tipped off by the police. If, you, if, if the, the Marcel principle, that, that I, the principle that I read out from Ingenious Media, does provide a way of dealing with that specific problem, um, 
really quite tidily, I think. And, and it might be worth mentioning at this point something that we haven't covered, um, well, I didn't discuss when I talked about ZXC, is that a lot of the discussion in ZXC, especially in um, Justice Nicklin's judgment, was about the confidentiality of the document. So a lot of the reason that he regarded the information as private was because it was so highly confidential because of the, the regime surrounding the letter of request. And so confidentiality has, has sort of loomed large in these... Um, certainly in ZXC and the reasoning of the judgment. And so in a way you say, well, if, given that confidentiality is so important or, or in that case was so important in, in reaching the conclusion that there was privacy, why, why is there not an argument just for saying, well, we'll determine it in, um, in confidence, particularly given that there, there is this principle in confidence which deals, in my view, so, so neatly with this, this very situation and that goes to the heart of one of the principal concerns, I think, about Richard and ZXC, which is about the way in which the, the, the police are using this um, or, or allowing this information to fall into the media hands. I mean, I agree with what Tom said, that there are some, um, that it does create some gaps. But then, as I said, um, those, I, I had some concerns um, about, about the fact that um, it may have, that it may have an undue chilling effect if it actually does go beyond state authority sources and includes people who might regard themselves as victims. Well, if you are right about this equitable principle being readily applicable in this use of private information, uh, one of the great upsides of it, in which I will be entirely in favour of, is it uh, helps me in my quest to prove that misuse of private information is not a straightforward tort. Yes, I was thinking that one. Different. Anyway, um, on that note, uh, that... It's all I think that we've got time for. But uh, thank you both, Paul and Nicole, for uh, a really enlightening discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Tom.